It is so good to see you. Uh, what a tremendous blessing to be able to open up God's Word. And we get to take a, a short break from uh, our study in Romans chapter 9, but we'll see some of the truth that Pastor John has been preaching about in Romans 9, even um, being presented in Ephesians 1. And, and that's the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning is Ephesians 1. So if you would, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, by God's grace that we, we do have the opportunity to, to look at this letter again. Uh, the very fact that this letter has been preserved for us through the ages, through millennia, uh, the fact that it, it's been translated into a language uh, that we can understand, uh, the fact that we have uh, digital and printed copies of this letter uh, right at our fingertips, uh, the fact that we're able to read it, uh, and comprehend what we're reading. Uh, all of this is truly a demonstration of God's grace to us. Uh, as we read this letter, as we meditate upon the truth that's laid out before us, as, as we submit ourselves uh, to the commandments and admonishments contained within, as we make volitional and intentional commitments to obey God's word, I'm convinced that we will see more and more of God's grace toward us who believe. We'll be able to see the beauty and, and catch at least just a glimpse of the measure of God's grace when we do these things. Our focus this morning is going to be on Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 7 to 10, but I'd like for you to read with me uh, verses 3 through 14. Again, we're we're looking at this masterpiece of an introductory statement that Paul wrote. And originally he wrote it as one 202-word sentence, a really long sentence that was an absolute masterpiece. And B.B. Warfield, commenting on this passage, said that it should never be read, but only sung. And I respect you too much, and I love you too much to inflict my singing upon you. Um, but hopefully as we read this passage, you'll, you'll get a sense of what Warfield's talking about, just the, the praiseworthiness that comes out of this passage. So open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll read uh, verses 3 to 14 together. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. 
And this is the holy and inerrant word of God. And the last time that we studied this passage together, we made note of the fact that in these opening verses, uh, in the first half of, of the letter, in fact, Paul was, was setting forth biblical truth about God. Uh, Paul wanted the Ephesians to, to know as much as they could know about God. And, and so he went to work uh, to expand their understanding of who God is and, and what God had done. And Paul was engaged in what Alistair Begg calls the, the gospel or the, the grammar of God or the grammar of the Bible. Paul started his letter by laying down the truth about who God is and what God has done, uh, and then he followed that up uh, in the latter part of his letter uh, with the imperatives, uh, with, with the commands of how we should live, how the Ephesians should live in light of that truth that he had set forth before them. At the beginning of the letter, Paul's immersed in what's called the indicative mood. Uh, he was giving facts about God, uh, glorious facts about a glorious God. The, the, the things he was writing in this opening statement um, they were indicative, or, or, or they in indicated the facts about God. Uh, later on, if the Lord wills, we'll be able to see how Paul had changed from that indicative mood and slid over to the imperative mood, where he gives one command after another. Uh, he says, do this and, and don't do that. Uh, love like this. Uh, protect yourself like this. Uh, live as a church in this manner. And this pattern of, of starting with the indicative mood uh, and then moving over to the imperative mood, it, it's not unique to Paul's letter uh, to the Ephesians. Uh, it's, it's not unique to Paul's writing at all. In fact, you'll see it throughout the Scriptures. If you go all the way back to Exodus chapter 20, uh, think about the Ten Commandments. Um, God starts off even in the indicative. Exodus 20 verse 1 says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. And then he would continue on. You see that, that, that God first started with the indicative, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. This is the fact of who God is and what he has done for Israel. And in light of that fact, then, then he moves over to the imperative and he gives them ten commandments. Uh, that they ought to obey in light of who he is, in light of those facts. You see the same pattern in the, in the Shema of Deuteronomy chapter 6. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's the indicative. Uh, this is the fact. God is one. And then he follows that up with the imperative. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. As we seek to understand what Paul was doing, his intended meaning in, in writing this letter to the Ephesians, it helps really to see right from the beginning what he was doing in that letter, especially the part that we're studying here, what he's doing in this glorious 202-word sentence. Uh, what he's continuing to do in verses 7 through 10 is that he's laying forth the truths about God. He's giving fact after fact about what God has done, especially in Christ. I've titled this morning's message, We Have Redemption, and that's straight out of verse 7. In him we have redemption through the blood, through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And we can stop there. This sentence, brothers and sisters, this should drive us to just give praise to God. 
Uh, it should drive us to, to want to sing more. Uh, like Charles Wesley, we should be longing for, for a thousand tongues to sing uh, our great Redeemer's praise, the, the glories of our God and King, the triumphs of His grace. Now, Paul had already laid out for us that, that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul told us that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Paul stated the fact that God predestined us for, for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of the Father's will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And as if all of that weren't enough, Paul would go on to report that in him, that's in the beloved, in Jesus Christ, in the Son of God, in the second person of the Trinity, in the Messiah, and in the Messiah alone, we have redemption. Paul stated the fact that God predestined us for that adoption, and, and then he just couldn't leave it at that. He had to continue on and say, this is also what God has done for us. This truth should always be at the forefront of our mind that we have redemption in Christ. This should be at the tip of our tongues. We have redemption in Christ. We have been redeemed. In our day and age, uh, even in the Christian church, the word redemption really isn't one of those words that is used all that often. I think most people, when they think about redemption, they think about maybe taking their cans or, or bottles down to the redemption center. Uh, and, and if that's kind of, if that's the the focus or the, the, the lens through which we see Ephesians 1 through 7, we're really going to miss the beauty of what Paul is writing here. In an attempt to, to get his readers to better understand redemption, Kent Hughes tells a story of a young man who, who loved all things sailing. Uh, he loved sailboats, and uh, he decided that one day he was, would make a sailboat of his own, just a model one. Um, now, he didn't order a kit on Amazon. Uh, he, he designed, he went to work and designed a sailboat for himself, and um, he poured a great amount of his effort into it. And, and people who saw what he was building, uh, they could even say that, that there was a bit of his image in that sailboat, uh, the way that he designed it, the, the meticulous nature that he went about it, uh, that there, there was even a sense that you could see that this was this young man's work uh, just in seeing what he was making. In fact, with all the cutting, with, with the sanding, with the varnishing, uh, it's true that there was blood, sweat, and tears that he had poured into this boat. Well, after completing the construction of the boat, he decided to go ahead and take it out to the lake and to see how it uh, did on, in the water. And so he took it out to the water, he set it on the water, and as he did so, he gave it just a little push, and then suddenly a strong wind came up and, and blew that boat uh, out of his reach. The good news was that the boat floated, and the the sails performed exactly as they were designed. Uh, the bad news was that the boat floated and, and the sails performed exactly as they were designed. Uh, and it didn't take long before that boat was not only out of his reach, but eventually even out of his sight. And you can imagine the, the heartbreak that this young man felt. And so much work went into this, and, and now it was gone. Well, a couple months later, he was walking through town, and he happened to see that his boat was in the window of the local sporting goods store. And he was so excited, and, and he ran in there, and he told the owner, he said, that, that boat is mine. I, I made that. Uh, and the owner said something about, 
possession being nine-tenths of the law or something like that. And he, he said um, that he explained that he had purchased that boat from, from a local fisherman. And if the boy wanted the boat back, that he would have to buy it. And so the boy went to work, and, and he worked, and he worked, and he finally saved up enough money to buy that boat back. And you can imagine his joy when he had that boat back into his hands. And he looked at the boat, and he says, you are twice mine because I made you and because I bought you. As we think about this illustration, it's it's an imperfect illustration, but I think it helps us understand the redemption that Paul's talking about a little bit better than if we're focusing it through the redemption center where we're taking our cans and bottles, right? Uh, This this is... um, this illustration really helps us, helps us to understand the reality of the goodness of redemption. As we think about and meditate upon our redemption, the first thing that we need to realize is that redemption is necessary. If you're taking notes, that's going to be point number one in your outline, that redemption is necessary. Now, Paul doesn't explicitly state it, at least in this part of his letter, But it stands to reason that if redemption is one of those spiritual blessings that God has blessed us with in Christ, then there was a need for that redemption. If redemption wasn't necessary, then it really wouldn't be a blessing, would it? As we see the truth that redemption is ours in Christ, we are confronted with the reality that redemption is a necessary reality. We're confronted with our need for redemption. The Bible teaches that our need for redemption stems from the depravity of our souls because of sin. This is one of those doctrines that it can rustle feathers. It it can hurt people's feelings. Uh, People don't like to think of themselves as being totally depraved. In fact, people spend really good money and go to therapists so that they can say that they're good enough and that they're smart enough and that, that people like them. Right? When, they, when they're confronted with this re, the reality that they're totally depraved, it, it hurts their self-esteem. But the Bible wasn't written for our self-esteem. The Bible was written for Christ's esteem. Uh, the Bible was, the, the, the truth that God has revealed to us in his word, is, it's not designed to make us feel better about ourselves. Uh, it's to make us see the glory of God and to bring glory to God and not to us. And total depravity, though, it doesn't mean that man apart from Christ acts as badly as possible at all times. Uh, it might be hard to believe at times, especially in, in times, the current times that we're living in, uh, but mankind can still behave even worse than we do. Uh, mankind is capable of unspeakable evil, uh, and it's only by God's grace that, that those who are not saved are not acting as badly as possible 24 uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, Neither does total depravity mean that apart from Christ that it's incapable for a person to do relatively uh, good deeds. Uh, Those who are unsaved give money to charity. Um, They do good deeds for family, for friends, uh, even for total strangers. they're involved in things like trying to stop human trafficking and other evils in the world. These are relatively good deeds, and people who are not saved are able to do these. Not only are they able, but they're doing these things on a regular basis. But the biblical doctrine of total depravity teaches that sin 
has passed down to mankind uh, ever since the fall of Adam. And while we don't have time to do an exhaustive study of this doctrine, I, I think it's helpful as we, as we think about the necessity of our redemption uh, to think about at least three concepts that are included in the doctrine of man's total depravity. The first is that sin is totally pervasive. Uh, sin is pervasive. Sin invades every aspect of human life. There's no part of man that is free from the effects of sin. You know, the older we get, I, th- I think the more aware uh, we become uh, of the effects of sin on, on our physical bodies. Uh, sin has an impact on the human body. Uh, we're all moving toward physical death, and, and along the way we encounter things like illness and, and a variety of itises, like arthritis and, and tendonitis and, and pancreatitis or, or whatnot, pain, disease, death. These are all impacts uh, from sin. But the effects of sin don't stop with our physical bodies. Uh, sin also fully corrupts the spiritual part of man. Speaking of unbelievers, in Titus 1.15, Paul writes, both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Those are some harsh words, right? Those weren't designed to, to boost self-esteem. Uh, Paul wasn't worried about trigger words, right? He was, he was worried about set, setting out complete truth. Uh, giving the full counsel of God. Well, in describing unbelieving Gentiles, Paul referred to the the futility of their minds. Uh, He said they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Sin is pervasive. It infects every aspect of human life. John Calvin put it like this, we are so entirely controlled by the power of sin that the whole mind, the whole heart, and all our actions are under its influence. This is true of those who are apart from Christ. Sin has control of their lives. Well, in addition to the the truth that sin is totally pervasive, we, we need to see that because of sin, man is incapable of pleasing God. Apart from the work of God in a person's heart, it is impossible to please God. Those good deeds that I mentioned earlier, like, like giving to charity and, and helping out family and friends and, and strangers, uh, doing acts of kindness, working to stop evils like human trafficking and, and social injustice, all of that, if done apart from Christ, uh, is just seen as dirty rags before a holy God. In Romans 8, Paul says, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And Jesus taught, apart from me, you can do nothing. The total depravity of sin renders man incapable of pleasing God. Lastly, the Bible teaches that the universality of sin extends to all of mankind. All humans are sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. You get the distinction there, right? First uh, Kings 8.46 says, For there is no one who does not sin. Psalm 14, 1-3, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none 
who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Paul quoted from this passage and and from others in Romans 3, and as he concluded what is really an exhaustive argument about the depravity of man, that that all men are sinners and are incapable of saving themselves, he, he finished up by saying that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's in Romans 3.23. Despite all of that biblical evidence, and there's far more that we could get into, uh, if you're still doubting the total depravity of man, uh, maybe I could just invite you to serve in the children's ministry for just a couple of Sundays, right? I mean, just put, like, get, get a, a room full of toddlers and, and just put one toy in the middle of them and see what happens, right? And, and I can tell you what happens is, is not something that we teach uh, in our Sunday school curriculum, right? It, it's innate in them what happens there. Um, just a couple of weeks ago, right here in the sanctuary, I was watching, um, trying to give focus to what Pastor John was preaching, and, and I saw this uh, God-honoring and, and Christ-fearing uh, mom who was inviting her little two-year-old to, to sit in the seat right next to her. And you know what that little cherub did? Uh, he, he just folded his arms across his chest, looked her right in the eyes, and said, no, I don't want to. That little angel, right? Now, I can guarantee that mom and dad didn't teach that two-year-old to completely reject all authority and to talk to them in that manner. And that kid didn't encounter that teaching in our Sunday school either. That's not part of our curriculum. Now, on that same day, I saw a little three-year-old boy, and he had taken his one-year-old brother by the earlobe, uh, totally unprovoked, uh, and, he, and he started to dig his thumbnail into his brother's ear. And it, and it almost looked like there was a, a smile on his face, but I think it was more of a snarl than it was a smile as he pressed his thumbnail into his ear. And I can guarantee you, mom and dad did not teach their three-year-old son how to pierce his brother's ear with his own thumbnail. And, and that wasn't something that he was taught at church. Society didn't give that kid the, the insight on how to pierce his brother's ear. The kids are, are a delight, and, and, but they're also really helpful in, in helping us understand our need for redemption. They're helpful in, in un, uh, helping us to see the total depravity of man, those sweet little angels. Well, the Bible is clear that uh, all, and that's an all-encompassing all, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. Our sin has made it a necessity of redemption. Uh, in John eight thirty four, Jesus told the Pharisees, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The redemption that Paul's talking about in Ephesians 1.7, where he says, in him we have redemption, this is a redemption from slavery. Uh, that, that's what that word means. It, it's, it's a release from bondage or slavery. And, and usually uh, that was accompanied by a price being paid as well. And when God had brought Israel out of, out of Egypt, uh, he redeemed them out of slavery. That redemption is, is necessary uh, the redemption that is necessary for us in, in this day and age, the, the redemption that Paul was writing about in Ephesians, uh, this is a redemption out of spiritual slavery. All have sinned 
Anyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. We have all sinned and, and we all need redemption. And the good news is that we have redemption in Christ. And that's point number two in your outlines, that we have that redemption is ours in Christ. Look back at Ephesians 1, 7 again. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. The first thing that we see about this redemption that is ours is that it is ours in Christ. In him we have redemption, that is, in the beloved, in Jesus. This has been Paul's emphasis thus far in his introduction to this letter. God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. God blessed us in the beloved. And now it is in Christ that we have redemption. We do not have redemption apart from Christ. Uh, We cannot possibly redeem ourselves because the redemption price is simply beyond our reach. Paul said that we have redemption through the blood of Jesus. The price of redemption was Christ's own blood. As slaves to sin, we did not have the ability to free ourselves. And Horatio Spafford sings of this in his hymn, It Is Well. He said, Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. And the scriptures repeatedly attest to the price that Jesus paid to redeem sinners. Listen to 1 Peter 1, verses 18 to 21. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Hebrews 9.12 says that Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Mark 10.45, it says, For even the, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus Christ willingly went to the cross to die in the stead of ruined and hopeless sinners. He paid the price to set us free from that bondage to sin and to to deliver us from the wrath of God. This is great cause for celebration. And that's exactly what Paul was engaged in in writing this first part of his letter. He was celebrating redemption here. When God delivered Israel out of Egypt, when he had given them safe passage through the Red Sea, the nation of Israel sang a new song, a song of salvation. You see it in Exodus chapter 15. In Exodus 15, 2, it says, uh, this is Israel singing, and it says, The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. This is the right response to redemption. Men, women, and children from every tribe, tongue, and nation will join the heavenly host one day, and will sing They'll be singing about this for eternity. Revelation 5, 9 to 13 tells us about this. And it says, And they sang a new song, 
saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. By your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard, and around the the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying in a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. We'll be singing this song with the angels for eternity. But the best part of it is, is that the best part really is ours because we are twice his uh, because he made us. And unlike the angels, he, he also redeemed us. Well, going hand in hand with our redemption is the forgiveness of our sins. We, we see that in Ephesians 1.7, which says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of of our trespasses. And in Paul's uh, partner letter to the Colossians, he put it like this. He said, He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is a glorious truth, isn't it? Uh, this, this is cause for, for our souls just, just to pour out in love and singing new songs. Not only have we been ransomed from slavery to sin, as if that weren't enough, we've, we've been delivered from the penalty of eternal punishment. And as if that wasn't enough, we, we've been made clean. Through the blood of Christ, our sins have been forgiven. In 1558, John Calvin preached on this same text in Geneva. And he said, God puts our sins out of his remembrance and drowns them in the depths of the sea. And moreover, receives the payment that was offered him in the person Of his only son. Over and over again, scriptures affirm this truth. Psalm 103, verse 12 As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Isaiah 44, 22. What a great verse this is. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Jeremiah 31, 34 For I will forgive their iniquity, I will remember their sins. No more. Micah 7.19, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Matthew 26.28, at the, the Last Supper, Jesus took a cup and he told his disciples, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Then 1 John 1.9, a very familiar verse, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood, and we have the forgiveness of our sins. Apart from Christ, we remain slaves to sin, and the wrath of God remains over us because of our sin against a holy God. I fear that uh, maybe I have belabored these first two points Um, But when it comes to our very real need for redemption and the fact that we have redemption in Christ, 
I think the hazard is in not saying too much, but in, in not saying enough. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached through the book of Ephesians, uh, and it took him over 230 sermons to do it. Uh, but when he came to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, uh, he read it aloud, saying, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And then he confessed that, that he was tempted to simply close his Bible at that point and to call it a day. Um, he, he was tempted to do a microphone drop before microphone drops were a thing. Um, and I, I, I can tell you that, well, he went on to go ahead and preach four more sermons on that one verse, uh, but I understand his temptation as he encounters that. Um, in many ways, this, this one verse beckons us to, to simply read it and, and to sit back and just enjoy it. Uh, there's a simplicity and clarity to Paul's writing here that, that makes us, uh, certainly makes me feel like uh, if, I, if I try to add understanding to it that I'm simply just going to mess it up. Um, on the other hand, the glorious truth of having redemption in Christ, it really demands that we take a meticulous, a really in-depth look at this passage to try to capture all the beauty of our redemption from every angle possible. Well, in addition to seeing that, that redemption is needed and, and that redemption is ours in Christ, we also see in Ephesians 1, 7 to 8, that redemption is according to God's grace. That's point number three. Redemption is according to God's grace. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Stop there. Have you guys heard of uh, John D. Rockefeller. Uh, most of you probably have. Uh, John D. Rockefeller was, at one point, he was the richest man in the world, and he's believed to be the, the richest man that M America has ever produced. Uh, he was an incred incredibly savvy businessman, and he was known as a philanthropist as well, especially later on in life. Um, if Rockefeller wanted to give away his money, uh, he could do so in, in one of two ways. Uh, he could give from his wealth, uh, or he could give according to his wealth. Always on the lookout for, for po uh, positive publicity, Rockefeller was often photographed uh, giving money to, to poor kids. It's believed that he was actually trying to set up these photo ops, and, and he always, always had a photographer handy. The most famous picture of Rockefeller shows him dressed in a really nice suit, and he's wearing a top hat. And he's bending at the waist, and he's, and he's handing a dime to a poor little kid. This was Rockefeller giving from his riches. And while his riches weren't infinite, uh, they certainly were substantial. And one has to wonder uh, how things would have been different for this little kid if Rockefeller had given according to his riches rather than merely from his riches. Uh, if he had given according to his riches, he, he could have bought this kid a a brand new house if he wanted to. He had enough money, he could have bought an entire city block for this kid. Um, but that wasn't what he wanted to do. Uh, when, when God grants repentance to unbelievers, he gives according to the riches of his grace, not merely from his grace. You see, you see the distinction, right? Uh, grace is often referred to as unmerited favor. Uh, but I like how Charles Hodge puts it. Uh, he says that God's grace is an overflowing abundance of unmerited love 
inexhaustible in God and freely accessible through Christ. That's a beautiful description of grace, isn't it? It's an overflowing abundance of unmerited love, inexhaustible in God and freely accessible through Christ. This is the grace to which Paul refers to in Ephesians 1, 7, and 8. God doesn't simply give from his infinite storehouse of grace. No, he gives according to the riches of his grace. He lavishes that grace upon those who would turn from sin and who would put their faith in Jesus Christ. To those who would see their need of redemption and who would believe that such a redemption is possible through the blood of Christ alone. God opens up those inexhaustible storehouses of grace and he lavishes the believer according to his riches of grace and not merely from the riches of grace. Remember what Paul's doing uh, in the beginning of this letter. He's writing in the indicative mood. Uh, He's telling the Ephesians all about God in hopes that they would have a greater understanding and and a more profound love for God. In telling them these facts, it seems that he's singing God's praise rather than simply listing a list of things that God has done, listing truths about God. No, he, he's singing these praises of God. And, and it's this grace that he's really blown away with. Paul, Paul never got over the fact that he was saved by God's grace. Uh, later on in, in this same letter, he, he would really emphasize the fact that salvation is by grace alone. We've been saved by grace this apart from works, right? There, there, there's not to be any boasting in our salvation because it's only by God's grace that we're saved. Well, that brings us to our fourth and final point, which is that redemption accomplishes God's purpose. Number four, redemption accomplishes God's purpose. Paul states in, in verses 8 to 10 that God lavished grace upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The Bible is often referred to as, as redemptive history, and so it is. It's not a collection of, of mystical writings that are, are trying to design to, to help us be the best us that we can possibly be. They're not these mystical writings or spiritual writings to help us to live our best life now. No, the Bible is a, it's a progressive revelation of God's purpose and his plan to redeem a people for himself and for his glory to, and ultimately to bring all things together in Christ. History is not this, this never-ending cycle. It's not this circular thing. It, it, there's, there's a timeline to history. It's moving toward a final culmination. The Bible records this history. Uh, From the beginning in Genesis 1 to the end in Revelation 22, God has progressively revealed to us, to mankind, what has happened and what will happen. He's done this by his grace. What Paul describes in these verses is God's gracious revelation of a mystery that had been kept secret until just the right time as determined by God according to his purpose. And this, this mystery, it wasn't a mystery because it was beyond our understanding. It's not beyond human comprehension. It was a mystery because it wasn't revealed until God decided that it would be revealed. It had to be divine revelation. As we read the scriptures, we see God's redemptive plan unfolding. And here's the mystery. The the will of God is to unite all things, whether they are things on earth or things in heaven. He will unite all things in Christ. 
This has been God's plan from before the foundation of the world. And it's, it's only by God's grace that he's revealed this truth to us through his word that we can understand this. This points us back to Revelation 5. We looked at that passage earlier, and we, and we saw that, that ransom people from every tribe and, and language and people and nation are united with the heavenly host and singing praises to the Lamb who was slain. And so as we think about what Paul was communicating to the Ephesians in chapter 1 in verses 7 through 10, and we should be asking ourselves, well, what's the proper response to this? Uh, he's, he's giving in indications of who God is, but we should still be wondering, what do we do with this truth? For the believer in Christ, I think it's, it's right to do what Paul was doing in this letter, that, that we celebrate this redemption, that, that we sing God's praise because we have been redeemed. We re- remember our need for redemption and celebrate the fact that redemption is ours in Christ. We recognize the precious price that has been paid, the blood of Christ poured out for us, for our very souls. And we seek to glorify God in all that we do. We repent of sin and we believe in Christ. We sing songs about the God who has become the God of our salvation. Rejoice in knowing that you are are twice his because he made you and because he bought you. You are not your own. You've been purchased with an incredible price. For the lost, the right thing to do, of course, is to repent of sin and to put your full faith and trust in Christ. Stop rejecting the gospel of Christ. Stop trying to earn your way into heaven. Stop somehow trying to merit salvation. Stop trying to redeem yourself. You don't don't have the right currency. You don't have the means to redeem yourself. Believe the indicative truth revealed to us in the Bible. Believe the facts about God, about who God is and what God has done. Then obey the imperative to repent and believe. Recognize your need for redemption. Fall on your knees before a holy God and beg him for forgiveness of your sins. Let's go to God in prayer now and and ask him to give us the strength to do that. Father, do thank you for your word. Father, I pray for those who are still lost, uh, Lord, who would hear this message, who would hear the good news of Christ, the good news of forgiveness of sins, the good news of of redemption from slavery to sin, and, and the freedom that comes from knowing and trusting and believing Christ, the freedom that comes from turning away from sin and believing in Christ. Lord, I pray that the lost would know that even this morning, that today would be the day of their salvation, that they would stop rejecting the good news of Christ, and that they would simply and humbly surrender their lives to you. Lord, for your saints, I just pray that this message, that you would use it to sanctify them, that you would increase their understanding and increase their love for you. And Lord, as they love you more, that that would result in calorie burning response, that, they wouldn't, that we wouldn't just be hearers of your word, but Lord, that we would go out and do it, and that we would be singing songs of praise to you, songs of, of redemption, songs of your grace to us in Christ. Father, pray that your spirit would call to mind at all times the redemption that is ours in Christ. May we be focused on the things above. May we be thinking about 
the redemption that is ours in Christ, the, the price that he paid for us. Lord, we cannot do this apart from your spirit working in us. And so we invite your spirit. We, we plead with your spirit to do a work in us. Transform us more into the image of your son. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.